Dear Father, thank you so much once again for the opportunity to come think about you. Please settle into our minds just now this wonderful truth about who you are. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off last time. First of all, just to review a little bit about the dreams. We talked about the dream in Daniel 2, just for review, where we have these, uh, the first one at least, labeled. And Daniel would say, this was the dream, and he told him, you are the head of gold. So we know Babylon is the head of gold. After you, there will be another empire, not as great as yours, which I said was uh, Medo-Persia, and I think we can make a case for that today, which I will. After that, a third empire, an empire of bronze, which will rule the whole earth, Greece. And then there will be a fourth empire, as strong as iron, which shatters and breaks everything. And just as iron shatters everything, it will shatter and crash all the earlier empires. And uh, I suggested uh, that Rome would seem to be the likely um, who this is describing here, although many would disagree with that. I'll try to make a better case for that today. And then we finished off with the next major vision. Remember I said these parallel, they overlap, they reinforce on the previous vision. And uh, that this one in the first year of Belshazzar, there are again four huge beasts that come up out of the ocean, each one different from the other. The first one looked like a lion. Lion, the symbol of Babylon, had its wings like an eagle. While I was watching, the wings were torn off. And I think this parallels Nebuchadnezzar going insane. And the beast was, but he was lifted up and made to stand up straight. And then a human mind was given to it. And we have this wonderful prayer of King Nebuchadnezzar after he really admitted there is one true God. And then we have a second beast, which looked like a bear standing on its hind legs, or many of your versions will say standing on its side. It was holding three ribs between its teeth and a voice said to it, go on, eat as much meat as you can. Again, I would suggest this refers to Medo-Persia, but I'm going to make the point for that in just a minute. And then the next one, while I was watching, another beast appeared. It looked like a leopard, but on its back there were four wings, like the wings of a bird, and it had four heads. It had a look of authority about it. Again, I would suggest Greece, and here are the, uh, the four generals that took over after Alexander the Great. But again, our real case for making this is in Daniel 8. And then again, we have a fourth beast, which is always the, the bad one. After I was watching, a fourth beast appeared. It was powerful, horrible, terrifying. With its huge iron teeth, it crushed its victims and then it trampled on them. Unlike the other beasts, it had ten horns. But now we get description about something else. While I was staring at the horns, I saw a little horn coming up among the others. It tore out three of the horns that were already there. This horn had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting proudly. And I like this here because Daniel often would ask for clarification. I don't understand. And so we read on a little later for clarification, and this is what we learn about the beast. This is the explanation I was given. The fourth beast is a fourth empire that will be on the earth, and it will be different from all the other empires. Something unique about this empire. It will crush the whole earth and trample it down. Okay, I've been reading this book recently for no motive in regards to this Bible study. It's just a history of the world, but it's a really good book called The People's History of the World. And this, I mean, this man does not believe in, uh, I think he's probably an atheist. It's a great book. He doubts the historical, uh, that Jesus really existed as a historical figure, all right? So he's not trying to make a religious point. But just as I'm reading through, uh, all the bells and whistles are going off here as he's describing what happened after the Roman Empire. Again, just a, a history book. Notice, there was one, or there was 
uh, one should be great survivor of the crisis of the Western Roman Empire after A.D. 40, 400. This was the religion which had arisen from very small beginnings over the previous centuries to become the official ideology of the empire, Christianity. And he would go on. The church hierarchy was turning into a shadow bureaucracy, a second empire, wide administrative structure standing alongside the first. And he goes on to describe in great detail how the church among many nations really became the power and the authority for a very long period of time. In the late 11th century, a series of reforming, quotes, popes had aspired to centralize so as to impose a near theocratic structure on the whole of Europe. So there was another empire after the Roman Empire, which really was the church. I think we could say Christianity, really. I mean, that was uh, believers in Christ. This was the reigning power for a very long period of time. And I'd really prefer to call this Christianity as opposed to uh, Catholicism because, again, this was the face of Christianity during this time. Christianity gone wrong. I mean, if we look at uh, the beliefs that were held counter, really, to the face of Jesus Christ, uh, indulgences and greed where you could buy your way to heaven, uh, so much uh, lust for money, of course, the great cruelty, the Inquisition, people burned at the stake, Wars in the name of Christ, and of course, lots of intermediaries. You know, if we take the belief that Jesus was God in human form and he chose disciples uh, to be uh, his uh, fishermen, he hung out with prostitutes, tax collectors, and that was God. And he said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, no one in between. But now all of a sudden, we have all these things erected between us and God. Uh, we need a priest, we need saints, we need lots of other people in between us and God. Again, not supporting uh, what the very plain things that Jesus came to bring. And of course, the great restriction of knowledge. It's not safe for the people to have the Bible in their own language. We need priests who can interpret it, keep it in the Latin, not in the language of the people. So this was called the Dark Ages for a good reason. It really was the Dark Ages during this time. And of course, then we have the Reformation. And I just had to bring out one uh, quote here of Martin Luther that I'd never read before that I found uh, rather interesting. He said, The word did it all. While I sat drinking beer with Philip and Amsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. Kind of interesting. The word did it all. So what we have here again is this uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, Christianity, or sometimes uh, papal Rome, uh, then being the next power, I would propose as that little horn that was boasting and saying all kinds of bad things about God. Okay, now that was kind of a, this just continues on here in Daniel 7. Notice what happens next after this description of the fourth beast. Thrones were set up while I was watching and the eternal God took his place. His clothes and his hair were white as snow. His throne was a blazing fire with fiery wheels and flames were dashing out from all around him. Countless thousands were standing there to serve him. The time of judgment began and the books were opened. I watched closely to see what would happen to this smaller horn because of the arrogant things it was saying. Then before my very eyes, the fourth beast was killed and its body destroyed by fire. Again, taking this sequentially, that beast, which represented a false system, was destroyed okay, by fire. Again, after uh, the Reformation and the subsequent things, uh, that would happen. But my question here is about the judgment. What is the judgment? We have a lot of uh, 
at least I did, a lot of preconceived notions here about the judgment here. God on a great throne um, sounds terrifying. But here's what we have coming next, the judgment. And the book of John just talks about the judgment so much. So I want to go through and talk a little bit about the judgment. Again, a lot of preconceived notions here about the judgment sounds like a scary thing. But let's just go through these verses. I think we can make a a compelling case for perhaps looking at the judgment in a different way. Notice what Jesus had to say about the judgment. Nor does the Father himself judge anyone. Is that a relief? He has given the Son the full right to judge. Um, Do we feel pleased that maybe the uh, more sympathetic member of the Godhead is our judge? It's good it's not the Father that we get, we get Jesus instead to be our judge. No, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They're, they're both for us, equally for us, equally the same in character. So our question is, what does it mean that the Father is not the judge? Jesus, the Son, is the judge. And he's given the Son the right to judge because he is the Son of Man. Okay, so Jesus is the judge. question is, what does that mean? Jesus would say, I am telling you the truth. Those who hear my words and believe in him who sent me have eternal life, which we've said is to know God. They will not be judged, but have already passed from death to life. Okay, people who believe in Jesus, who enter into this eternal life experience of knowing God will not be judged. Okay, now what about those who reject Jesus? And this is an incredible verse here, John 12. If people hear my message and do not obey it, I will not judge them. Even though we just read, Jesus will be the judge. I came not to judge the world, but to save it. Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. Okay, who is that? The words I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. The words that Jesus spoke will be the judge on the last day. That's pretty remarkable. How are you judged by words? This will be our judge on the last day. I mean, this is referring not to just during the time of Jesus, but to the future, to the last day. We're judged by words. Well, Jesus spoke a lot of words. What words would we propose as the words that judge us? I think we'd have to go to what he defined as his mission, where he said, "...an eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ whom you sent." I have shown your glory on earth. I've shown your character on earth. I finished the work, the work, the mission you gave me to do. I have made you known. Jesus came to reveal what God is like, came to reveal God's character. That was his mission in coming. Okay, so I would say these are the words ultimately that are the judge. And just as maybe one example of this, Jesus answered him in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me because, of course, how can you get to the Father? How can you know the Father without the revelation of the Father through Jesus Christ? Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my Father also. And from now on you do know him and you have seen him. Incredible. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That's all we need. He's not convinced. Show us the Father. And Jesus answered, for a long time have I been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, Jesus is not a partial revelation of who God is. He's a complete revelation of who God is. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. This is the most spectacular passage. 
And Jesus went on, Why then do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now notice, the words that I have spoken to you, Jesus said to his disciples, do not come from me. The Father who remains in me does his own work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If not, believe because of the things I do. Okay, the entire package, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God is. The words, the actions, this reveals to us who God is. And I would say ultimately we are judged by our how we respond to this great revelation of God, which he's continually trying to pour out on each and every one of us. Do we respond to a God who is just like Jesus in character? Okay, this is, would seem to be a big part of the judgment. Let me make a better case for that. Jesus would go on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What truth? The truth that he came to reveal about the Father. The truth about what God is like. That is the truth that truly sets us free. And he would say, I was born and came into the world for this one purpose. We just described what the one purpose was. To speak about the truth. To speak about his Father. To speak about God. To reveal who God is. That's what it's all about. And then Jesus left and said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. What's the function of the Holy Spirit? Exactly the same thing. Jesus defined the function of the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit. What does he do? Who reveals the truth about God. So the Holy Spirit then ultimately reveals to us Jesus Christ. That's how we know God. That's the function. The Helper will come, the Spirit. What does he do? Who reveals the truth about God. When the Spirit comes... Again, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God, he will lead you into all the truth. What truth? The truth about God. Okay, so when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, ultimately there is truth about who God is that uh, should entirely uh, permeate our existence. The Holy Spirit brings us Jesus Christ. Okay, so in this context, in the book of Revelation, these three passages are extremely significant. They describe the people... Uh, prophetically, end time, in the same kind of language. Okay, in the context of this great battle, the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to fight against the rest of her descendants, all those who obey God's commandments. Again, what does all law, all commandments point to? Ultimately, love. Love for God, love for neighbor. And are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. They're faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. They're faithful to the picture of God that Jesus came to bring, a God who is not punishing, arbitrary, vengeful, severe, a God who is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be. In Revelation 19, the angel says, I am a servant together with you and with other believers, all those who hold to the truth that Jesus revealed. The truth that Jesus revealed is our single most important belief. Worship God, for the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. And again in Revelation 20, I also saw the souls of those who had been executed because they had proclaimed the truth that Jesus revealed. Truth that Jesus revealed about his Father. Okay, that's the bottom line. And so Jesus would say, and these these passages really give clarity. He would say, I came to this world to judge, even though he just said he wouldn't judge. I came to this world to judge. Notice how it works, though. So that the blind should see and those who see should become blind. Because what happens is when the, when the truth is proclaimed with clarity and it's compelling, people have to decide. I either accept that or I reject it. 
the judgment, which is ultimately the revelation about who our God is, it causes a splitting effect very much. Some see, some become blind. Just like Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God brought all this evidence. Okay, There is no God of the frogs. There is no God of the Nile. There is no God of the sun. All these plagues were evidence to Pharaoh. He progressively hardened his heart. This was a judgment for Pharaoh. And finally, his heart was completely hard. And how about this? In John 3, how about could there be a more clear verse than this? This is how the judgment works. This is how the judgment works. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. So the light, the good news about our God has come into the world. And again, do we enter into that light or do we say, no, we reject that and we, uh, we are left in the dark at that point? Again, the dramatic splitting effect of the judgment. And this one of my favorite verses of all doesn't use the word judgment, but I think it is exactly describing the judgment. God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. That's what we're supposed to do, diffuse the knowledge of Christ like a sweet fragrance. But notice the splitting effect once again. For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills. Again, the judgment. But for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. So the more clear the truth is presented, the more clear and easy the choice is for people to make. Jesus came very much. I mean, it was a judgment for the Pharisees at that time. They absolutely hardened their heart against the revelation of God that Jesus revealed. They were judged. Okay, a few more verses here. In Romans, Paul would say, And so, according to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on the day when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. How does the judgment work? It's again and again, the judgment is linked with the good news because the good news is what brings judgment to our hearts. Okay, so according to the good news, this is how it will be when God judges people. We see that wonderful truth about God and we have a free will decision to accept that, to like it, to enter into that relationship with God or to reject it. Another clear verse, for the time has come for judgment and it must begin first among God's own children. And if even we Christians must be judged, what a terrible fate awaits those who have never believed God's good news. Again, judgment and good news. And it's a terrible fate if you don't believe God's good news. God doesn't have to do anything to you, but it's a terrible fate. Second Thessalonians 1. It is also right for God to give all of us relief from our suffering. He will do this when the Lord Jesus is revealed, coming from heaven with his mighty angels in a blazing fire. He will take revenge on those who refuse to acknowledge God. Okay, he's going to go on and clarify that. And on those, notice, who refuse to respond to the good news about a person, who respond, fail to respond to the good news about our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, they will pay the penalty. What's the penalty? By being destroyed forever. How? By being separated from the Lord's presence and from his glorious power. Okay? And so when we read about the third angel's message, Again, the good news and the judgment, they go hand in hand. Revelation 14, Then I saw another angel flying high in the air with an eternal message of good news. Good news is about our God. 
to announce to the peoples of the earth, to every race, tribe, language, and nation. He said in a loud voice, honor God and praise his greatness, his goodness, for the time has come for him to judge all people. And how does he do it? With the spectacular revelation of good news, which brings judgment. Worship him who made heaven, earth, sea, and the springs of water. Okay, so again, I would say here, as we go through this pro progression timeline here, as we have this uh, false Christianity, really, which dominated um, such a large portion of the world for such a long period of time, and then we have information that there will be this period of time of judgment linked with good news. We can't have a judgment unless the good news is presented. And so if we come back to this passage again here, I won't read this again, but this is God sitting on his great white throne and the judgment and the books are opened. Um, but notice here how this verse continues, or this passage. As I continued to watch the vision that night, I saw what looked like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice he's not coming to the earth. And he was presented to the eternal God. He was crowned king and given power and glory so that all people of every nation and race would serve him. He will rule forever and his kingdom is eternal, never to be destroyed. My own personal belief about this passage here is we have this incredible judgment scene, which uh, I've just tried to make a case what that judgment actually is. And I think what brings the judgment here is that Jesus Christ, the humble one, is elevated in stature as equal with God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father that God is seen to be like Jesus, that kind, that forgiving, that humble, and that there will be a time when that picture of God will be just loud and clear for all to see. He is elevated as equal with God, the same as God as we could make in, in so many, uh, make that point in so many cases in Scripture. So the good news really will go throughout the entire world. So what is the judgment? In a sense... We are judging God. And just as one verse maybe to support this, God must be true even though all human beings are liars. As the scripture says, you must be shown to be right when you speak. You must win. You, God, must win your case when you are being tried. And the New Living Translation, he will be proved right in what he says and he will win his case in court. God will win his case in court one person, one mind at a time. As we evaluate the evidence... And as we see, really, boy, God is completely vindicated. God is not responsible for, for evil. God is not a destroyer. And one by one, individuals are convinced about who God is in character. Again, many will not be convinced. So often perception and reality, it seems to me, are quite divergent. Perception, God sits on a fiery, intimidating throne, reviews the books of our actions. We shake in our boots. Reality Will we respond to the good news about God's character as revealed by Jesus? Perception. We beg to let, for God to let us in. We pound on the door. Reality. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come into their house and eat with them. They will eat with me. Perception. We're like the servant, the prodigal son out in the pig pen. And remember his speech. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. Okay, what's the reality? What did Jesus say? I don't call you servants any longer. Instead, I call you friends. Perception and reality. The good news is much better, I think, than we've ever really believed it to be. Okay, but we have to come now to another uh, really interesting subject here in Daniel. And that gets us to our third vision. 
In the third year that Belshazzar was king, I saw a second vision. It wasn't really a second vision. But I was standing by the Ulai River, and there beside the river, I saw a ram that had two long horns. Now, remember, we saw previously the bear was on its side. Now here we have a ram with two long horns, and one of them is longer and newer than the other. And Belshazzar, remember, he's the king. We don't have time to talk about this, but the writing on the wall. Okay, so the Babylonian Empire is almost over. So this is not referring to Babylon now. Now we're starting with Medo-Persia. Okay, I watched the ram budding with its horns to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stop him or escape his power. He did as he pleased and grew arrogant. And here's what's so incredible. Daniel asked for clarification. And so he gets clarification. The ram you saw that had two horns represents the kingdom of Media and Persia. It's defined in the Bible. That's why I think if we take these visions as parallel in each other, we can go back and say Media and Persia, they belong together here as we're trying to make sense of these things. So the Bible defines for us, it's Medo-Persia. Okay, and while I was wondering what this meant, a goat came rushing out of the west, moving so fast that his feet didn't touch the ground. He had one prominent horn between his eyes, Alexander the Great. He came toward the ram, which uh, I had seen standing beside the river and rushed at him with all his force. I watched him attack the ram. He was so angry that he smashed into him and broke the two horns. The ram had no strength to resist. He was thrown to the ground and trampled on, and there was no one who could save him. The goat grew more and more arrogant, but at the height of his power, his horn was broken. That very well describes the story of Alexander the Great. And again, the Bible doesn't leave us hanging here. It defines the nation for us. The goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the prominent horn between its eyes is the first king. First king of Greece, who would that be? Alexander the Great. Okay, I wish there was more commentary like that within the Bible in so many places. But here it just makes it very clear. Okay, and in its place, four prominent horns came up, each pointing in a different direction. And there were four generals after Alexander the Great. Now, we get more detail here about this fourth kingdom and especially the little horn. Out of one of these four horns grew a little horn whose power extended towards the south and the east. Certainly the Roman Empire did, but noticed, and toward the promised land. It grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven. How do you attack an army in heaven? The stars themselves. It threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. It even defied the prince of the heavenly army. Wouldn't that be Jesus? Stopped the daily sacrifices offered to him and ruined the temple. People sinned there. Instead of offering the proper daily sacrifices and true religion was thrown to the ground. Didn't we just describe what happened here during the dark ages? True religion was thrown to the ground. The horn was successful in everything it did. Then I heard one angel ask another, how long will these things that were seen in the vision continue? How long will an awful sin replace the daily sacrifices? How long will the army of heaven and the temple be trampled on? And I heard the other angel answer, it will continue for 2,300 evenings and mornings during which sacrifices will not be offered. Then the temple will be restored or then the temple will be cleansed. Okay, what is all this referring to? Let's just go back here and try to imagine here that a power strong enough to attack and fight the army of heaven and the horn was successful in everything it did and uh, my Bible here has a very authoritative footnote. The little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. You have to be pretty confident to actually put it 
you know, in a footnote in the Bible. So Antiochus Epiphanes uh, would seem to have been quite a mighty ruler based on the description here. So just a little bit historically about Antiochus Epiphanes. It's true that he did suspend the temple services for uh, about a three-year period of time. Okay, he was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. His father was truly uh, the great. Antiochus III was the great. But uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was not so great. And uh, just to read one little quote here, a story about Antiochus Epiphanes, he was attacking Egypt. And he besieged Alexandria, but he was unable to uh, cut communications to the city. And he also needed to deal with the revolt in Judea. So at the end of 169, he withdrew his army in his absence. Uh, Ptolemy VI, who was king of Egypt, and his brother were reconciled. Antiochus, angered at his loss of control over the king, invaded again. The Egyptians sent to Rome asking for help. Out on the outskirts of the capital, he met, he met uh, Popilius, with whom he had been friends during his stay in Rome. But instead of a friendly welcome, Popilius offered the king an ultimatum from the Senate. He must evacuate Egypt and Cyprus immediately. And this is kind of humiliating. But Antiochus begged to have time to consider. But Popilius drew a circle around him in the sand with his cane and told him to decide before he stepped outside it. Antiochus chose to obey the Roman ultimatum. Just by historical standards, Antiochus Epiphanes was not a great power. It's true, he did stop the daily sacrifice. Um, so I've wondered if maybe there's initial fulfillment of prophecy and then a later much greater fulfillment of prophecy, but he certainly doesn't seem to fit uh, the great description here. So we have this cleansing of the temple. And again, footnote in my Bible, the 2300 mornings and evenings are equivalent to the three years and some days during which the desecration of the temple lasted via Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, is there another possible interpretation here? Well, let's just come back and think about this again, that this power grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven. Now we know this can't really have been um, a literal I mean, how do you destroy the army in heaven and threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them? This is a symbolic description. It even defied the prince of the heavenly army. Jesus stopped the daily sacrifices, ruined the temple, was successful in everything it did. And if we parallel this description, if it's true that these dreams really do uh, overlap and we get additional insights as we put them all together, we consider how mighty this kingdom was. In Daniel 2, the fourth empire, strong as iron, shatters and breaks everything. Just as iron shatters everything, it will shatter and crush all the earlier empires. The same beast here in Daniel 7. I was watching a fourth beast appear. It was powerful, horrible, terrifying. It does not sound like Antiochus Epiphanes. With its huge iron teeth, it crushed its victims and then it trampled on them. Unlike the other beasts, it had ten horns. And while I was staring at the horns, I saw a little horn coming up among the others. It tore out the three horns that were already there. This horn had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting proudly. And again, the explanation clarification Daniel was given was that the fourth beast is the fourth empire that will be on the earth and will be different from all the other empires. Different, I would say, in the religious nature. It's attacking the heavenly army. Okay, it ruined the temple. And here's, I think, what really nails it down for me, that this just can't be referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. After we get this vision in Daniel 8, here's the description. Mortal man understand the meaning. The vision has to do with the end of the world. Antiochus Epiphanes. It's, no, it has to do with the end of the world. 
And this vision about the evening and morning sacrifices, which had been explained to you, will come true, but keep it secret now because it will be a long time before it does come true. Okay, so this was not an immediate fulfillment. The end of the world, a long time before it will be true. So, uh, again, coming back here to answer the question, how do you, de- how do you attack the army in heaven? How do you defy the prince of the heavenly army? We have lots of parallel descriptions of this. Let me just bring up one for illustration. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the 72 to evangelize the world at that time? And they came back in great joy. Lord, they said, even the demons obeyed us when we gave them a command in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And at that time, Jesus was filled with joy by the Holy Spirit. Okay, now Satan was not literally thrown at that time. What was happening was in the minds of people, he was being cast out. Okay, truth was victorious. Satan was thrown out. Okay, so just as Satan could be cast down, well, if the whole world believes a lie about God, then true religion is destroyed. God is himself cast down. The heavenly armies trying to bring truth about God are cast down. True religion was destroyed. And I like the interpretation here in the God's Word version that truth was thrown to the ground. And isn't that exactly what happened during the Dark Ages? I mean, there was very little true knowledge. Despite Jesus' spectacular revelation, it was a dark time in terms of representing God as he was. Okay, so I think this is describing the same period of time where the Christian church had totally made a shambles of what Jesus wanted them to reveal. Okay, so what does it mean here? So yes, it's true that uh, they did attack the army of heaven, heaven and Satan won. He was successful. The stars themselves, it threw some of them to the ground, trampled on them, it defied Jesus. Certainly it did. If you believe you can't even talk to Jesus, that we have to talk with someone else to talk to Jesus, stop the daily sacrifices, ruin the temple. So here's what's significant. We have a description here of the temple being ruined. And then just a few verses later on, the temple is being cleansed. So what does it mean here to ruin the temple? And and I guess the question is, what is the temple referring to? So we have lots of temples in the Bible. We have physical temples, of course, which are described, but we have spiritual temples. Remember when Jesus said, when he was at a physical temple, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. No, he was referring to his body. Okay, but let's talk a little bit about the spiritual temple because I think that gets to the meaning of what temple is destroyed, what temple is cleansed. Go through a number of these quickly. In 1 Peter 3, come to Christ, who's the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he is precious to God who chose him. And now God is building you as living stones into his spiritual temple. Okay, we are stones in this spiritual temple. Revelation would say that we are pillars in this spiritual temple. So much imagery here. We're stones built on the cornerstone. We're pillars in the temple. In Ephesians 2, you too are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Christ Jesus himself. He's the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. In union with him, you too are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives through his spirit. That's a spiritual temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, surely you know that you are God's temple. Very clearly, we're the temple. And that God's spirit lives in you. 
God will destroy anyone who destroys God's temple, for God's temple is holy, and you yourselves are his temple. And uh, too much we limit this to a message about diet. Again, ultimately, is it is the temple is right up here in our mind. I don't remember if I told you about this patient I have who's a quadriplegic. Can't move his arms or legs, can't eat, has to be fed through a feeding tube. And um, is he not a temple? Of course he's a temple. His temple is right up here in the mind. He can't, I can't give him any advice about diet or exercise. He has a temple, his mind. This is where we decide for or against God. This is the ultimate temple. And Paul makes it so clear. 1 Corinthians 6, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? Where does the Holy Spirit live in us? Fingers, toes, isn't it ultimately right up in the mind? And in 2 Corinthians 6, For we are the temple of the living God. As God himself has said, I will make my home with my people and live among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And in Hebrews 3, Paul would say, We are his house. We are his temple. Okay, so how do you defile a temple? Is there a dirty building in heaven? Is not the true religion being thrown to the ground? Does it not describe what is going on in individual minds as there is just darkness, one after another, uh, failing to see that God is anything at all like Jesus Christ? So what would it mean then to cleanse the temple? And just go back to Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the temple, and we'll notice the temple is about cleansing you and I. Leviticus 16.16, In this way he will perform the ritual to purify the most holy place from the uncleanness of the people of Israel from all their sins. He must do this to the tent because it stands in the middle of the camp which is ritually unclean. And it becomes very clear as we read on. On that day the ritual is to be performed to purify them the people, from all their sins so that they will be ritually clean and perform the ritual to purify the most holy place, the rest of the tent of the Lord's presence, the altar, the priests, and all the people of the community. These regulations are to be observed for all time to come. This ritual must be performed once a year to purify the people. Okay, ultimately, God is not concerned about furniture, but about our hearts and minds. That is what is ultimately cleansed. So Paul picking up on this in Hebrews, I know I'm going through a lot of material here, but it's, it's so important to me, in Hebrews 9, seeing that the first tabernacle was a parable, a visible symbol, a type, or pictures of the present age. In it, gifts and sacrifices are offered and yet are incapable of perfecting the conscience. What's that talking about? Or of cleansing and renewing the inner man of the worshiper. Is that not describing what is going on upstairs? But how much more will the blood of Christ make our consciences clean from dead human efforts so that we can worship the living God? So what I think is being described here is there was a time when the temple was ruined. It was destroyed. Mind, individual mind by mind in, 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 in the world history. Okay, but something has happened. Something will happen. Maybe something is happening where the temple is being cleansed. The battle is over the mind. And this verse in 2 Thessalonians 2, often taken as a very uh, literal thing, Satan's going to come down and sit in a building somewhere. No, if we've identified the right temple, I think this is very significant. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the final rebellion takes place and the wicked one appears who is destined to hell. 
He will oppose every so-called God or object of worship and will put himself above them all. He will even go in and sit down in God's temple and claim to be God. And I think this is really describing, I mean, I don't think Satan is that excited about sitting in a building, but he would like to reside in our minds. And if he resides in our minds as God, then he receives our worship. We, if we're settled into Satan's false caricature of who God is, then he is sitting in a temple where he does not belong. Okay, so there is an intense battle going on within our minds. So our duty as priests, Revelation describes you and I, we are the priests. Our duty is this. It is the duty of priests to teach the true knowledge of God. And this is what cleanses the temple. But notice what was going on in this time of Malachi. The priests had defiled the temple, which the Lord loves. How did they defile it? They were not teaching a true knowledge of God. We bring Jesus Christ that cleanses the temple. And so I'm not getting into any specific dates and times. I would just say this does not happen in one single moment in time. But I, would, I think it's a progressive revelation as one person after another, individual, one by one, gets it. And it looks like it will happen. So we have this incredible progression here in timeline, uh, going through false Christianity, and then a great good news that will go throughout the entire world as a splitting effect, a judgment, and the book of Revelation, I think the cleansing of the temple is the seal of God, my own impression, that people, individuals after individuals get it, others don't. That's the mark of the beast. But what's very encouraging to me is this verse. And this good news about the kingdom, not just about the kingdom, but about the king of the kingdom, will be preached through all the world for a witness to all people, and then the end will come. So when we talk about the end, it's often emphasized, well, if there's a war or maybe a nuclear bomb or something like that, that will be the sign of the end. And it's true. I think we will see lots of uh, horrible things. But what would be a clear sign to me that we're coming to the end is perhaps when the message, the good news, is really preached with um, clarity, it's seen, it's recognized, and there's a movement that goes throughout the world that is discussing, hey, you know what? God is just like Jesus in character. That would be the best evidence to me that the end has really come. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, please be with each one of us. Help us to take this mission, the same mission that you came, which was to reveal a true knowledge of God, that we might have eternal life, which is to know you. And may we as your priests take on this same mission in the world to represent you, to bring the true knowledge that one by one people may understand, they may enter into this wonderful experience knowing relationship with you as a friend. In your name we pray, amen.